the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Planted with Sarah Pion. I'm Sarah Pion, your host, and today we have Executive Chancellor of Oaksterdam, Dale Sky Jones, on the show. Dale, welcome. I'm so excited about our conversation today. Thank you for having me, as am I, Sarah. We, I, I love geeking out with you. We're going to get into some deep dives with education, policy, reform. But before we do that, what was your first cannabis experience? My first memory of cannabis is this odor coming out from under my mom's door late at night, usually after she thought I went to bed. Um, and you know, it was just like, it was, it was something that I flashed back to later when I was in my own situation. Uh, I had gone to visit my dad out in Seattle, um, for the summer and his best friend had a son out visiting him. Um, oh, the age of, the ages of divorced parents and visitation, all of that. And so I was, uh, 14 and hanging out with, uh, my dad's best friend's son, who was the same age as me, um, he introduced me to cannabis and probably like in looking back, if I were him, it would have been kind of hilarious, but also really cruel. Um, he introduced me to the, oh God, what is that? Gravity bong? Is that what it's called? Oh yeah. Cut the bottom off a milk carton and suck it in and then force it down. So that was my first time. And I think I coughed for about, I don't know, half hour straight. Uh, and I just remember us like locking ourselves in the bathroom, cough giggling with his dad asking like, are you okay in there? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> um, and I'm pretty sure he knew, uh, but was kind enough to like, just look the other direction. Anyway, fast forward, I was dumb enough to bring an itty bitty, like a quarter of a bowl, like a flake of a flower home with me from Seattle. And when my mom unpacked my bag, she found it. Oh. And that was the last time I touched cannabis <laughs> for years. <laughs> I was in so much trouble. Um, and funny, 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 not funny, looking back on it, it was also where I can identify the first time that stress triggered vomiting for me because I was so in trouble and stressed out that I started throwing up. Oh. Fast forward throughout my life, um, I realized that cannabis was medicine. And, you know, in the moment, you're just a, a dumb kid experimenting, right? Like mm -hmm. any other dumb kid. And fortunately, I was experimenting with something that was unlikely to kill me, unlike the binge alcohol drinking that some of my friends were doing. And that same summer, uh, my best friend lost her life in a car accident with her boyfriend who was drunk driving. Same summer while I was in Seattle experimenting with cannabis, she died behind the wheel or, well, she's the passenger in an alcohol-involved accident. Oh. But that 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 vomiting incident, it kept happening through my life. And I thought, oh, I'm it's just food poisoning or, you know, alcohol poisoning, even though I had two sips of wine and suddenly I'm in the hospital throwing up. What's going on? And it, it turns out that I have cyclic vomiting syndrome and and cannabis helped with with the vomiting, with the nausea. And, and it's just interesting that as as when you ask me, what was your first incident? It's only occurred to me in the last couple of years that that incident was also the first evidence 
of my medical condition that I can point to. So it's, yeah, it's full circle in such a strange way. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it's it's interesting, like, how we become introduced to it. And especially, like, I think perhaps now, and, and by saying this, I'm not condoning youth access to cannabis by any stretch of the imagination. But I think that more people understand the medicinal uses of cannabis than they did when we were younger and it was just all fun and games and then all of a sudden you know some of us have that aha moment where it's like oh and because it has these properties let's have some conversations about having respect for what we're putting in our bodies too when what's well i was just gonna say i was a dare kid not only did I go through the D.A.R.E. program, but I was one of the like high schoolers that went into my my stepsister's middle school to talk to them about not doing drugs. Like I was I was all in. One of my best friends was sheriff. Like it was, you know, I, I would all that. And it's interesting now as I'm raising three kids, six, nine and 12 currently. And a lot of what we were taught to fear back then, it, you know, the. The, this is your brain on drugs, pristine white egg, crack, sizzle, yeah, uh, you know, fry an egg. Very dramatic. This your brain on marijuana was was scientifically wildly inaccurate uh, and and it, it, disinformation, but also one of the most effective marketing campaigns in all of history. And to see now, as I'm having conversations with my kid, I'm not saying go smoke pot. I am saying don't touch pills. If you feel the need to go try something, to alter your mindset, try plants, because at least I know those plants aren't going to kill you. Plants, right. not pills, because now the stuff they used to terrorize us with 30, 40, 20 years ago in D.A.R.E., even now, D.A.R.E. is actually still taught in several states. Um, it's not the cannabis that's going to kill you, but fentanyl will. And it's just kind of remarkable because a lot of the the fear tactics that were entirely false back then, specifically about cannabis, we made the safest therapeutic substance known to man illegal, which then pushed us towards all of these other things, all of which can kill us. Um, so even just as a harm reduction technique and having these conversations with our kids, um, just that one can kill you now. And yeah. it is true now. It's It's frightening. It is frightening. It's frightening. I, I actually had a, um, I lost a friend this summer to a fentanyl poisoning. And I feel like if we had more conversations about what's going on and had more places where, from a harm reduction standpoint, people could safely use drugs and make sure that they are what they say they are without the repercussions of other people's judgments around it, because it's going to happen whether we like it or not. But do we want to save these lives? Do we want to remove the stigma so maybe people aren't as curious about it? Because I know, like, as a kid, you told me not to do something. I was down. Like, that was that was what I wanted to try. And that was the failure of the D.A.R.E. program, is all it really did was introduce young kids who never would have thought twice about any of those substances. Now they've got a menu to try. At, at at the end of the day, the and this this is something that we've we've talked about at, at Oaksterdam. We actually have a free class that you can take. It's the exit from opioids, the exit from pain. Um, that cannabis can be a harm reduction technique, a cessation technique that 
you can step down off of some of these drugs that are prescription that that you have become dependent on and 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 your friend like so many so many folks that have lost their lives these are not like drug addled individuals you know sitting in the corner drooling saying give me more no. these are people just like you and me who take cold medicine who then take a little bit of that and a little bit of this and then they don't wake up in the morning it's it's someone who just says, oh, well, let me just take a little bit more for, for this back pain. And then mom doesn't wake up in the morning. There's these are these are people just like you and me um, and folks that have seceded or seeded from opiates who then go back to them, have a lower threshold that is their lethal dose. And so in so many of these these programs that then disallow any other drug as you go out and see them drink coffee and smoke cigarettes, cigarettes will kill you. Um, that, that cannabis can really be that, that harm reduction technique and, and an answer to the pain because it does speak to the pain receptors in a way that opiates just simply dumb you down to the point that you don't care anymore. And also you can't poop. It's, it's a problem. Friends, it's the side effects. Um, it so. absolutely is. I mean, that's that was why I used cannabis when I was going through colon cancer because a lot of the pharmaceuticals could have caused constipation, and that when you're, you know, when you've got colon cancer, that can kill you. It's it's uncomfortable other times of your life. Yeah, but when it can kill you, and with my condition, uh, the. You, uh, if I could explain like staring at the pill at the bottom of the toilet and that pill costs you $1,500, the moment where you're actually considering fishing the pill out of the toilet because you cannot afford another pill. Yeah. I didn't, but God damn it. I thought about it. I, you know, and, and those are like the moments where you have to make these decisions and I can't keep that damn pill down anyway. Cause I can't keep water down, but I can't throw up smoke or vapor. Right. And, and so having that alternative of, you know, my husband, you know, blowing up the volcano as I can't stop throwing up and just pushing the air into my face until I can take it to my lips until I can get up. And, and you know, maybe I am getting carted off to an IV somewhere. But at the end of the day, just keeping keeping the keeping you alive. And then the other danger that I'd love to, like, switch to if, if I can use this as a segue you know, one of the most dangerous things for our health is is jail. Right. <laughs> it's terrible for your health. Um, and that's, you know, that's the other thing that that we've been largely focused on with our policy reform is decarcerating individuals that have been put away for nonviolent, you know, especially marijuana convictions. Um, but also making sure that there's a life after that, okay, in that moment in time, this was illegal. It's a lot easier to have the argument now that so many people are doing it legally. Uh, so timing is everything and yes. you are on the right side of prohibition and they were not. So how do we make sure that they have gainful employment or if they choose, if they're kooky enough to want to be an entrepreneur, I say that with love because I am one, um, that they have an opportunity to not just work for for that guy, that they have an opportunity to engage in entrepreneurship and that, uh, you know, small business is not just the backbone of our American economy, but it should be the backbone of the cannabis economy, that this is where uh, women, this is where veterans, especially women of color, survive and thrive in small business. And this is where our small business can grow to big business. 
Um, but without that opportunity, without the chance to engage, um, you know, the, a lot of what we're, we're working on over the last decade has been if we'll get the, the law changed. And now in my mind, it's about who gets to participate. Um, how do we finish this and um, not create oligarchies in, in states where you're either, you know, working for them or or an outlaw. Right. And, and and when we start looking at it from a national perspective with legalization and hopefully interstate commerce. Yeah, and 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 there's a lot of complication there where I see folks that in theory would agree with legalization are now suddenly fighting legalization to protect their particular fiefdom that they have a lot invested in. And, and it's, it's, it's been really strange days, um, especially over the last couple of years to, to figure out what goals can we align on nationally? Uh, what, because even if we, even if we manage to deschedule or flip the switch federally, we still have about 48 states that have schedule one laws. There's like two commonwealths that didn't adopt the schedule one failure. Um, and so there's a lot of little flips to switch. There's a lot of law changes that need to be rewritten. There's hundreds of thousands of lines of law from the the book that your officer uses, the law enforcement officer, when they pull you over the vehicle code, you know, all the way through child protective services and how they respond. Uh, and in a lot of these situations, one gets ahead of the other where it's like, yeah, you can go legally buy it, sell it, smoke it, but you have no parental protections and they will come take your children from you or you lose your job for that activity. Uh, there's no safe banking um, and, and things like property forfeiture are still alive and well in our criminal justice system. So finding those things like safe banking that help Yes, the big MSOs and also the small businesses. Um, you know, how do we find things like that that we can align on without feeling like that is the end of all progress should we achieve it? Right. And then when we are looking at having it be nationally legalized, as we know in our lovely state of California, you and I have been here long enough to have seen the days of abundance during the 215 days where people were thriving and we had a lot of female-fronted owned businesses to how things have changed now. And one of the questions that I was asking the chairs, the co-chairs of the, can the Congressional Cannabis Caucus was, you see, especially because uh, one of them, one of the co-chairs is our very own Barbara Lee, who I adore, and asking her, you know, you see what the chaos is going on in our state right now around regulation and taxation. When the feds come in, they're going to want to have their piece of the pie. And how is that going to affect it? Because right now we have all these taxes. I mean, excise tax every time it changes hands. Like our consumers don't realize that it's taxed every time it changes hands. What is that going to look like for these states? And how is that going to create you know, a, a growing industry. Like we were mentioning earlier about how smoking is bad for your health, smoking cigarettes. Well, the taxation on tobacco is much lower than what we see with cannabis. So when is this going to stop being a syntax? When are they going to stop just expecting to get their, their money's worth until we fail and actually create thriving environments for people to succeed? 
Well, you, you, you unfortunately just underlined or identified, I should say, one of the, not everyone intends for this to succeed. There is a governor of one of the Southern states who flat out said, our state's not going to make money off taxes. We're going to make money off fines and penalties and then proceeded to find the first people opened over $100,000 as soon as they opened. And so the syntax on nascent businesses and industry is is definitely an it, 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 it's 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 too much and and for all the wrong reasons um, going mm -hmm. back to the original discussion of this is the safest substance we should be making it wildly widely available more available and, and easier to get than the other drugs we commonly consume that are more dangerous i'm not saying for your 12 year old right. i'm saying mom, right yeah. Um, but the, you know, at the, at the, but also let's not put the 12 year old in, in juvie for trying it either. Um, that, you know, the, 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 when, when the most dangerous thing is getting caught with it, um, then you've, your priorities are upside down. Um, with, with the national conversation and some of the interstate commerce issues, I would postulate, and this is, you know, this is something we talk about in our business of cannabis program, because they're, they're, not everything has all the answers, right? There's a lot of fuzzy lines. And, and part of what we have to do is advocate uh, for these law changes, for what we want. And with the federal government being able to have the conversation of what if you only took your cut when it crossed state lines instead of every sale? Uh, having the conversation has already worked in Colorado, uh, Washington, and California, who came in heavy on taxes. They've all dropped. All of them have recognized that, oh, this is this is too much. But there's also unseen issues like community redevelopment plans and, and even the very social equity programs that I participate in and support ultimately um, have, have a heavy toll on legal businesses especially when they're still competing with illegal businesses, charging half the price across the street. They're just as snazzy and polished and feels legal. Uh, you know, it's it's not that, you know, dark dungeon anymore uh, oh. with, with dude that feels sketchy. Like you, it's really hard to tell the difference. Um, and and so we, we are facing an extinction event here in California and that same fear uh, and I don't mean just one, we've had a series of them. And that same fear is viable for other states when we open up. You know, Vermont was never meant to be a production state. It became one because of the silo. And California is the breadbasket of the country. It makes sense that California would grow cannabis that New York consumes because New York can't grow enough for how many people are there that would like to consume it. So there's definitely markets where that can can benefit that that push pull but sarah when this opens up internationally chile is going to colombia they're going to kick our ass here in america like this you know it's not just thinking nationally but thinking internationally and the longer that our us government prevents us companies we've already seen you know the what what happened up in in canada uh, at a certain point, we are disadvantaging Americans if we are not addressing this issue with the view of, of international commerce and compliance. Agreed. 
completely. That it's. I feel like in many ways we're putting money in the hands of the wrong people. Also people, groups that actually are significantly saving money due to legalization. Law enforcement, I'm talking to you. <laughs> we still give up. Uh, sorry. I just want to reappropriate. Like, I don't want to yeah. take your funding. I want to give you your funding to go after people that perpetrate crimes against others. Right. That, you know, violent crime, human trafficking. There's so many things to do. Rape kits. Uh, yeah, there's... There's so many things to to focus on. Um, it, it, it it goes back to to alignment, and you know what? When I when I walk into a lot of these rooms, I realize that figuring out just those those larger goals and overcoming some of the fears. Um, one one perfect example I'll give you: in just about every state, you had the larger players fighting against home grow. Mm-hmm. We've got to make home grow illegal. They have to come to us to buy it if they want to buy it. And instilling an awful lot of like f- fear and concern in, you know, legislatures and or legislators as they are talking in, in uh, that throughout all of the, the different lawmakers, they're instilling all this fear in the community about, oh, well, if, if you let Aunt Betty grow a cannabis plant next to her tomatoes, then cats are going to start sleeping with dogs and hen- hellfire and damnation will rain upon your soul. And they're concerned for what they are investing in and what they're building. And I, I get all that. But when you take a step back and start, for instance, reading Frontier Data's analytics, where they are watching consumer behavior patterns and reporting back on this, the truth is that those who home grow spend the most at dispensaries. Y'all are blowing it. You yep. are blowing it. These are the people that appreciate all the hard work, are willing to pay the prices, want to try new new varietals and 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 methods of ingestion, are more likely to buy the higher price stuff, are more likely to buy more types of stuff, more items per transaction, more dollars per transaction, and they are destigmatizing for all of their friends to also become your customers because they walk by and say, Betty, what is next to your tomato plant? And she's like, you know what? I got this little cutting in my dispensary. I'm growing my own. And Meanwhile, she's going back to you to buy every other week. You are blowing it. Right. All of these assumptions and presumptions of what you think you need to do to protect your business, you're blowing your bottom line. So finding those those things that we can agree on, that the, the way that we overgrow the government, overgrow the government is we all plant a few seeds and then everyone realizes it's not a big deal. The plant is not going to jump out of its pot and throttle your children as they walk by. In fact, it won't even get them high. They've got to do an a lot of extra work um, <laughs> for that to happen. Yeah, they sure do. I when I when I grow and and I do not have a green thumb, Dale. No, I have a husband who has a green thumb, Sarah. <laughs> that is, he brings me flowers. <laughs> That's wonderful. See, I just I I hope for males and then I juice them. That's what I do. <laughs> like, and then I I look at my husband and I just like. I kind of like raise my eyebrows at him and I'm like, we juice the males. And he's like, juice oh. Males. oh, if you listen to some of our horticulture classes and didn't know what we were talking about, <laughs> right? I know. You really question my values, but no, it is, uh, no, it's, it's, it's awesome that you juice them and uh, it's good for you too. That's it. Yeah, that's yeah. it. And you know, I mean, it goes back to, leafy you- green. yeah. <laughs> and you know, 
Aunt Betty's tomatoes, that doesn't mean that she doesn't still buy them from the store, too. Or just because you can grow it doesn't mean you will, because a lot of us don't have the space. A lot of us are lazy. I'll raise my hand to that, you know, and it's just it's 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 crazy that they're putting their energy into that when there are so many other things that they could that not only benefit the general population, but also benefit them. It grows their market. It does. It grows their market. And then if these transactions, you know, it's how many times have you just whatever it is, whoever is within the sound of my voice, whatever your expertise might be, that once you talk to a client or a customer who's actually tried to do what you do, you have a better customer, don't you? Mm-hmm. They value, unless it's a doctor. You never want to be a doctor's doctor, but no. <laughs> <laughs> doctors tell me this specifically, so um, no, no harshing doctors. But uh, yeah, no, it it is it is it is true though, because once people have tried it themselves, they appreciate it. And and again, you're destigmatizing. This is we have had a hundred years of prohibition. And going back to that, this is your brain on drugs and all of the, you know, this goes back to the the 2010 campaign when I, against my better judgment and not on purpose, became the spokeswoman for the first statewide legalization campaign. And all of a sudden our campaign became cops and moms. It was a very, very pregnant me and retired law enforcement had to be retired. There, there were a couple stories of not retired that came out that became retired because they came out. Um, but it, it's hard to speak out against the what what master you serve. Um, and when you are a law enforcement officer sworn to uphold these laws, then it, it, it it's very difficult for you to speak out against them. Um, but having the former chief of San Jose and Seattle join me, having a former federal judge join me, having, you know, our, and she's now on my board, Diane Goldstein. She uh, is the executive director of LEAP, the Law Enforcement Action Partnership. And uh, in addition to being just a good, close personal friend, 23 years in Redondo Police Department, the first female lieutenant who ran the narcotics task force. She has seen everything up close. And after just shoveling sand into the tide and, and realizing where our priorities have been and what we've robbed from, the, the resources that we've utilized for this continued failure, um, it, it goes back for me, for, to education. Yeah. And our legacy has always been to get this discussed in major universities. And there are now several that we work with um, that recognize our classes and courses for credit, or that we are the foundation of, of some of the programs they teach. But being able to have these conversations, whether it's medical school, nursing school, uh, that we're having these conversations um, in political science departments, especially legal and, and um, you know, we're it, now that it's hard to believe 15 years <laughs> we've been teaching um, to see these, these programs now blossom throughout the country and throughout the world. These are conversations we should have been having all along. The endocannabinoid system should yeah. have been part of 
you're like that this is like a doctor not knowing you have a circulatory system like it's kind of important um to 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 understand how everything else works so just you know finding different ways to because education is non-threatening you know just just come learn something you you didn't know before uh whoever you are and and finding a place and space with like-minded people and then learning maybe what you didn't realize you needed to know that's it. Well, that's when I look at like, the first time that I created courses and taught at City College San Francisco, the politics with faculty around having that kind of curriculum took my breath away. And part of it, I mean, I have to admit, is because when we're in our own little pocket where we all understand what's going on and we're talking about it, you forget that there are people who don't understand it enough and there is still fear where they really are hoping that they don't have to have those conversations. But what's really heartening is now they actually have a lot of rich programming that they're, that they're making available, especially because of the low-cost classes. But if they really want to dial in and learn more, that's where they need to come to you and your courses. And how did you get into your work? <laughs> upside down and backwards uh accidentally um the i you know what i came to i came to cannabis uh from corporate america and had spent years climbing various corporate ladders successfully i owned my own restaurant i was in um a couple of different genres uh what brought me to cannabis was i, I really came to the end uh with with my then employer, it was a multinational employer, um, is the second largest shoe conglomerate in the world. So it was in retail um, for f- five or seven years. And the I just kept watching the, co- the company make really awful decisions that disregarded the people that worked the hardest to do the best. Like, it, I was just like, are you completely missing reality here? And, and w- what am I doing? You can only take so much out of, you know, the improving the people in front of you, which was my jam of taking someone, you know, hiring them in, headhunting, developing them eventually into maybe managing their own store or whatever. And and that was really rewarding. But when I suddenly realized I couldn't look people in the eye anymore and say, no, you come work for this company. It's like, whoo, crisis of, of conscience. Um, yeah. I can't do this anymore. And, and I had had a friend asking for a while, hey, will you go manage some doctors down in Southern California? Uh, There's one doctor in particular, and she had a couple of friends who wanted to do cannabis recommendations. Now, this was back in like 2005 and six. So long, not only like before this was cool, this was still decidedly not okay um, for most people. <clears throat> and uh, it was just like, well, Hell, how can being a business manager for doctors be that much worse than being a manager for this multinational corporation? I, I'm just, I'm done. I'm ready to leap. Um, and immediately after moving to Southern California, and Lord knows why, we started in Orange County, which is not the bastion of friendliness for cannabis. No. Um, it is now. But <laughs> it was a long road. task forces trying to shut us down, like sheriffs coming in undercover and trying to bust us and get our doctor's um, uh, medical license revoked. Um, and there were several doctors who had their license revoked in those years. Um 
I looked around for the training. What I had done for corporations in, in addition to management was always training. I was training adults. I was taking someone who didn't know how to do this job and getting them to the learning outcomes and, and productivity to not only do the job, but train somebody else to do the job, whatever that job happened to be. And so just validating people in their roles and, and making sure that they uh, hit all the marks um, and then moving on. And sometimes it was opening a new restaurant. Sometimes it was troubleshooting uh, one that was and you know figuring out what was going on and bringing them back up, rehiring, retraining. But I wrote multiple training programs, including the probably the largest in uh, world renowned, especially at the time, was TGI Fridays. And this is back when TGI Fridays, we got headhunted weekly by other corporations because it was the training program. The the cannabis industry had nothing. So as soon as I, there, it was not an industry. Let me, let me just, the cannabis movement had nothing. <laughs> we started calling it an industry at Oaksterdam because we wanted to be taken seriously. And the only way to be taken seriously was to take ourselves seriously. And so we started throwing around words like we put on our wall, quality training for the cannabis industry. When people walked in, they're like, what the hell is that? I'm like, oh, it's real and it's here and we are building it. And by the way, there's no ceiling, ladies, people of color. There's no rules. There's no one, no gatekeepers because we are building it. And, you know, veterans, it's okay that you were fighting a war or overseas or not there because now we have... We have a battle here at home for you to engage in that is also equally meaningful and you have battle buddies and, and that meaning to life of, of why try. Um, and that integration uh, was also super important for so many veterans returning from home and still is. Um, so, you know, just bringing together that, that, that band of misfits. Um, but it really all started for me looking for the training, looking for the education and realizing there is none. And so just doing what I always did of, okay, well, find the experts, call Dale, Dale Geringer. Dale said, well, call Jeff Jones. By the way, I still have the notes from my phone call with Jeff Jones back in, um, I think June or July of 2007. And we're married with three kids. So that happened. <laughs> Funny <laughs> how these things forward. all kind of, you know. <laughs> so he was the second one I called. Um, but it, it took a hot minute in between before all that happened. But, right, right. Uh, it, <laughs> there's a story there. But the, you know, just finding the experts and asking. And I realized, well, what Jeff was doing at the Patient ID Center was the only thing that resembled education because he was shut down by the Fed, by the Clinton administration in the 90s. He was still actually in his federal, he was, he, he went to, through the Supreme Court and he was still in the ends of trying to decide what to, what to appeal, what to let go, all that stuff. Um, uh, when I met him. Uh, so he was married to his Supreme Court case and I he was the catch that wouldn't be caught and I was the keeper who wouldn't be kept. So we were quite comfortable. Um, uh, but he, he was the, the one who was teaching patients how to grow. He was teaching patients how to have successful law enforcement encounters. And then he was the 1-800 number on the back of the ID card that cops could call to say, is this a patient? What is a patient? What does medicine even look like? Cause this just looks like a bag of weed. By the way, there's three, isn't that sales? No, actually. And he would just conversate with law enforcement so that they could use their discretion to let that patient go, to help them understand what this is and what it isn't. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it was really, 
that was the foundation of Oaksterdam. And, and when he was stopped and, and Richard started, people just kept saying, well, teach us how to grow, teach us how to do this, teach us how to do that. Okay, will you show up to city council for three minutes and tell them how to change this law so it's more legal for you to grow, possess, consume that cannabis? Oh, yes. Well, maybe here in Oakland, we can pass that lowest law enforcement priority. And bam, suddenly jaywalking is a higher threat than that cannabis in your pocket. So just all those little steps of tr trading, education for engagement, and, and building in advocacy, not, not just in everything that we do, but teaching you to do it in everything that you do. Mm -hmm. Because you have to be an advocate for your business or your business plan will be in the shredder the next time your city council meets and you're not paying attention. You know, I feel like prior to legalization, we had these wonderful opportunities for what the industry could be. We had people who were advocates, who were involved, who actually were starting to understand civics and get engaged with things that were going on. We had the opportunity to have conversations about compassion and capitalism working hand in hand and actually not only creating abundance for the operators and their families, generational wealth, but also the opportunities to give back to communities and really look at you know being active members. like. I was having this great conversation with Michael and Michelle Aldridge not too long ago, two of my favorite people. I, I, they're wonderful, aren't they? But we were talking about 9-11 and how they opened up champs early that day because they had so many people in line just waiting because it was their community center. They ordered pizzas and had the TVs on and everybody was together during a very scary time feeling safer and supported by their community. And I feel like a lot of that has gone by the wayside. Not all of it, because I do believe there are keepers of the flame around that, but I wish that there was more. I, I hear you. And, you know, this is... The good news is, is just about every room I walk into, a third of the room turns out are Oaksterdam graduates. And the Oaksterdam graduates, like, come swim in the cool, clear waters. Because that, that when you do well, you do good. And also that intellectual alignment, because, look, not everyone's trying to save the world, and that is okay. Yeah. Uh, but let me show you how this saves your bottom line. Because all of this alignment is is also good for that. Uh, that when you advocate for for better laws and safer access, you are improving, uh, you are growing your market, um, and and also because you are the one out there doing it, your market share. Uh, that when you hire women and women of color into leadership, that you match your community, and that also improves uh, customer loyalty. That it's not just your frontline workers, but your leadership uh, was my point there. And absolutely, your frontline workers <laughs> should um, should reflect your community um, and and how you hire and who you hire. And the way that you give back to the community it doesn't have to have anything to do even with give back programs for cannabis. It could be supporting uh, your local habitat for humanity. And that's how you interact with that elected official who wouldn't give you the time of day because they didn't care what you knew until they knew you cared about what was important to them right? and what their priorities are for their community safety. 
um, I think a lot of times it's it's really just about understanding the friction and that the objection presented is often not the the real problem, but also that those folks that think like us, and I know you hear me because they are your listeners, Sarah, that we are out there. And that's, I guess, what I'm trying to say is a third of the room is Oaksterdam. And when I say Oaksterdam, it's not a school you went to. It is a state of mind that you are trying to leave it better than you found it and that you got that education to figure out how to do that and that you can improve your station in life at the same time that you uplift those around you and everybody wins. You are a happier human being, <laughs> more fulfilled also, because it's not just about the money, um, but helping people engage in that and figure out where their places and and just how to engage is 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 often the struggle. I've got to share this with you because you you presented such a neat opportunity for an unknown story, Sarah. 9/11, the tragedy that 9/11 was is what saved the cannabis industry. Really? Really. Right before 9/11, there is a tremendous amount of evidence that the U.S. government was about to do a major crackdown in the Bay Area on all those advocates that you are thinking about right now, from Michelle and Michael, through Brownie Mary, through Dennis Perone, through Jeff Jones, through Steve D'Angelo, through all of the cats that were in the room, because back then you could fit everyone in one room, and they often all fit in one room to hash out what are we doing what is policy right because you're you were going back so far in time and the the conversations in the restaurants uh were in front of the restaurateurs that were our friends and so the fbi basically lunched at the same places we lunched at and they just might have shared some of the conversations that were happening around that time and and when the planes crashed into the building the fbi rightly shifted its priorities and what was about to be probably one of the the worst blows to the cannabis movement was canceled because they all got called back to new york and washington to investigate that tragedy wow i had yeah. no idea most people don't it's one of those untold stories that like you got to know someone that was there um and i happen to marry him so i <laughs> 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 There's there's a lot of of really interesting things that happened with policy and law enforcement, and and like there by the grace of God, go many of us, kind right? Of thing, right? Yeah. And going back to Michael and Michelle, like I remember them saying that back in like the seventies and eighties, when you talk about you know now we 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 look at cannabis legalization, even though we have people of all political persuasions involved. We often look at it as more of a liberal issue. But back in the day, they said that it was the Republicans that were really, you know, supporting legalization and how times have changed. Of course, how we parties change. The Carter administration, because one of the cannabis people outed someone in the Carter administration for cocaine. Some of the silliest things. We could have been legalized in the 70s had one person not kept their trap shut. It is, it is amazing how... And, and and this is why we we cannot ever 
stop or or give up and and I see a lot of businesses or companies or individuals where you you get very focused on your path and what is important to you and and that is important to achieve your goals um it's it's also just You ever completely lose your train of thought in the middle of a conversation? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes people will accuse me because of the work that we do that it must be that I'm high, but I'm it definitely high. is not. That's the problem. <laughs> you know, where, where it's going with that is just like, it's not give up that there's there's so many people like us that that think like us, that whatever it is that you think is just done and, and signed, sealed, and delivered, um, it isn't. And one, one of the things that I didn't understand when I first got into this, I didn't believe when I first got into it, uh, but I kept saying it and, and it has become something that I try to repeat to, to, to others, which is a Margaret Mead quote that never doubt a small group of committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has and if you see that problem, whether it's in your community or your state or your country, that remember when when we got started and, and going back to the 70s, it, they, you know, valiant effort, it it didn't have a shot in hell back then. Uh, the, the effort in 2010 actually had a shot in hell, which scared enough people that they immediately smacked it down and threw an ice bath on everything to just try to, you know, keep it going for as long as possible that... Um, you know, prohibition, the status quo is where comfort lies. Um, it's what people know. It's, 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 it's a security blanket. Um, no one thought that, that this, that we would ever be this far. And in 2023, people can't believe that even our story is real, like, especially the youngins. <laughs> right. Because like, they grew up when it was like, no, we, we were arresting someone every 40 seconds. We were arresting someone, taking them from their family, from their children, from their future. Every 40 seconds, we have arrested like the equivalent of 16 states in this country, every single person in it, and dis disenfranchised one out of four Black men from their life. Uh, it, it is it is without question, um, we, we are not done yet, No, but you're also not alone. And, and finding those folks that, that think like you, that realize that, that, that this is about freedom, that we can have a conversation of, um, you know, right along with the, the other amendments in the constitution that have been subverted in the name of the war on drugs. You know, let's tax cannabis like guns or tax guns like cannabis, depending on what state you're in. Um, you know, <laughs> that uh, that it, it shouldn't be um, more legal to, to have uh, one than the other, um, and it shouldn't be illegal uh, to be allowed to protect yourself with the Second Amendment um, if you happen to be a cannabis consumer or or patient. Um, and there there's there is a lot of crossover between the different political stripes. I think for me, it always comes back to what is the goal of the individual that I'm talking to, or the student that we're teaching, um, the government entity that we are uh, trying to discuss good public policy with and and when you really get up to the goal of like public and and human health and safety uh that the harm reduction that you talked about 
um, freedom, <laughs> it's America, uh, and and the ability to start a business, run a business, raise your children. Um, I think it's a conversation that that cuts through all stripes. And when folks think, well, I'm not, I don't care about pot. Weed is not in my top ten. Probably not. But whatever is in your top ten, I promise you, has been affected by the drug war, and subverted uh, by by some of these laws. So let's talk about what you're scared about, and and then go have that conversation. So I think again, it just goes back to education and and helping people understand what they didn't know before uh, and being a lifelong learner, especially around those subjects that you already think you know something about. Yeah. And that's something I, I love about our work is that we're constantly learning. We're constantly mm -hmm. learning. We're constantly sharing. And, and like you said, it is all intertwined because I remember I, I came from nonprofit and civil rights into our work. And I used to say I'm a former civil rights professional and, um, uh, actually, a mutual friend of ours, Jacqueline Patterson, said, you still are. You still are, because this is intertwined with everything. And yeah. it is, it's a call for, for critical thought and really thinking about the impact that the prohibition has done on so many lives and getting back into cannabis history, which everyone you know, you really should know, take a class. I know a place where some of these are offered. Um, <laughs> you know, I was doing some really interesting reading, especially when I was teaching my class on history about Anslinger and the DuPonts and our very own William Randolph Hearst and how it's all interconnected. But then this year, reading more about um, Prescott Bush and how he was in bed with everybody and the push at that time towards fascism and overthrowing FDR because they did not like the New Deal. And so when you really start to pull all of this together, you're like, where was this policy coming from? It wasn't coming from a good place. It wasn't coming from a place of public safety. It was coming in a place of mass manipulation, which is some of the stuff that we're seeing echoes of today in our political environment. You know, Sarah, I think that that uh, it was was the thing that I struggled with the most as I learned about this issue was, you know, it's, it sounds silly to say like, oh, your government would lie to you when when, you know, you're you're young, you at least years ago, <laughs> it was expected that your government was actually trying to look out for you. And you couldn't even imagine that in the 30s that that Congress would lie to get a law passed. And now you look around and you're like, oh yeah, no, I totally could see how this could happen. You know, it, it makes it, crazy? it makes it all believable. And it, it it's not that there was a giant conspiracy back in the 30s. There were a hundred tiny ones, follow the money. And they just all happened to align in the same direction where all these people, they didn't agree on a lot of things, but they agreed on one thing. And and it was to make marijuana illegal, to scare people, to whether it was, you know, subjugating the 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 classes and the people that commonly consumed it and these go back to other drug laws too you know it's totally. uh, women drank laudanum while uh, opium you know if you lay down and smoke it it's wildly illegal but if you drink it in a dress it's just fine um <laughs> so, <laughs> great you know, tea parties i'm telling you uh there's a uh, yeah so who it is um it is a lot and you know i i realize that Gosh, I don't know how we tiptoed into such a heavy conversation. I always seem to take it 
<laughs> I love it. That's oh, that's where we have these conversations. <laughs> Damn it, I did it again. I have a bud tender's guide to sell. Damn it, I never <laughs> sell shit. I only talk about how to sell. Um, but it is, you know, it 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 it's how do we? It's not even just intergenerational wealth. How do we avoid intergenerational debt at this point? You know, it's it's just how do we do a little bit better in our day? And and I'm hoping that that is something that. Like, yeah, Oaksterdam is absolutely for the big stuff. And we have been driving towards huge goals that seemed insurmountable that now seem obvious. Uh, and and now, you know, it's okay, we, we built it, but there's a lot of finishing to do and, and we're just not there yet. Um, but along the way, you need a job, you need gainful employment, you need a way to make sure that you're paying the rent or the mortgage that you're feeding your kids or yourself um, that you're you're not wasting your money on i mean good lord this is this is expensive whether you you're using it um medicinally or uh you're just an adult making that choice of am i going to go to the liquor store or or the dispensary so you know also making oaksterdam um easier to access for the every person um not just those that are going for a full career or full certification um, is, is something that we've really been working on over the last year um, of just, you know, free programs that you can just go take, like I said earlier, exit from opiates, starting from seeds. Um, there's a, a free advocacy class, conveniently, uh, <laughs> I strongly recommend you take. Um, because, you know, talking to, you know, maybe Aunt Betty gets it, but Uncle John doesn't. Right. And, um, you know, being able to advocate for yourself as as a choice uh, for what you consume or the job that you choose or the career that you take or the business that you open and being able to have that conversation with grandma can also be frightening and crippling. Being able to look your pastor or a mom in the eye is, is hard for people when they feel that judgment and being able to advocate for your choices um, is, is, and, and also make the right choices, uh, caveat emptor, <laughs> um, on, on what, what folks are trying to sell you, uh, what might be good for you might not be good for me. Um, and being able to figure that out. So I do strongly encourage, um, folks, we, we did recently publish, um, very recently, and it's only nine ninety nine on uh, actually free. If you have Kindle, you can just download it. It's got amazing uh, visuals and uh, accessibility, and also the print version. It's a reference manual for cannabis consumers and dispensary professionals, and so it's just a quick, easy reference guide for everything from titration to what is that anyway, and how is it going to make me feel, and how long is it going to make me feel like. So um, just an easy, easy guide. Everyone says, oh, nobody trains that stuff. Well, not only did we train it, we wrote the book on it. You're welcome. I love that. It's it's especially because we are in that back to school mode. It's like that's I think when people start thinking about things to purchase for themselves to enrich their knowledge base. And speaking of you have a new semester starting. Yes, we have two different types of courses and classes because we realize some of you just need to learn at 2 a.m. in your boxer shorts, but we also realize that some of you want that interaction with our experts and with fellow students in the class. So while these courses and classes are always available self-paced and you have access to the library of videos, we have only a couple times a year 
two live semesters. We do Horticulture Live and we do the Business of Cannabis Live. And starting on September 25th, we have our final cohort of the year. So this is your last chance on September 25th to join the Fast Track Semester Program. So it's really easy. Just go to oaksterdamuniversity.com and you can check out all of the learning outcomes and what you can be when you grow up, whether it's a cultivation technician or you are in fact trying to open a business. That's awesome. That's awesome. So if people want to learn more about the university, follow what you're doing, how should they do that? Websites, social media, what's the best way? You can definitely find us at Oaksterdam and at Oaksterdam University on Instagram. And I do strongly recommend that you go to our website because we do have at oaksterdamuniversity.com. And if you just type in Oaksterdam, it'll pop right up. Um, But we have also amazing student specialists who will jump on a 15-minute Zoom with you uh, or a Google Meet or a phone call and just talk out what are your career goals. If you are from, you know, so many of our students are at the top of their own game in a different industry. And they're just simply trying to figure out, well, how do I plug in with the cannabis industry? Maybe some of their clients are starting to come from cannabis or they're trying to transition and figure out, well, I've been a great marketer all this time. How do I start a marketing business that is cannabis facing? Um, So there's lots of different types of professionals that are trying to figure out how to engage. And the business of cannabis program is perfect for you because we're not going to teach you how to do business. There's, there's universities and college for that. We teach you how to interact with the business of cannabis. There are so many unusual rules from 280E with the IRS and the IRS. Ooh, do not mess with the IRS. Uh, There's important reasons to learn what you don't know you need to know before you start engaging in this, but also to be able to meet the needs of your clients and customers. If you don't understand their pressures, then you're not going to uh, meet their needs. Um, And and frankly, they're just going to move on from you because they're going to sniff that out like that. I think at the end of the day, one of the best things that I have had, um, and, and actually is the the first um, the first black man to earn a license in San Francisco, social equity. Uh, he runs Burners on Hate, and uh, what what Sean shared with me is, you honed my bullshit detector. <laughs> I already knew how to sell cannabis, but now I know how to manage my team, and I have to hire consultants for things. But now I know, I know their job better than they do. And so I know how to manage them doing their job versus, you know, the wool being pulled over his eyes, um, how to be compliant. And this was the king of cannabis on hate street. Like I said, he's been selling cannabis on hate for 30 years. He didn't need me to tell him to sell cannabis, but how to do it compliantly and how to get that license and then how to manage those interactions um, is what he did learn at Oaksterdam. Yeah. And he's he was on the San Francisco Cannabis Oversight Committee with me and his insight was invaluable. I, it was a joy working with him. I'm so proud of our graduates. It's it is I am regularly amazed um, at the folks that have come through Oaksterdam and and truly not just the leaders in our industry, but the secret of of Oaksterdam's success is what our students have gone out there and done. Well, thank you for planting the seeds. I mean, it's it really is about how we we help people develop, and they go forth 
and they share the messaging and conversation is normalization. And hopefully in 10 years, we can regroup and have a whole other conversation about this and see what we are doing. Oh, there's so much more to do. We have to hurry up and deschedule so we can get to all the ecological issues that have been blocked and stopped by by the failure to legalize hemp all those years ago. So yeah, there is there is a lot more to do. And that's your hit of hope. There's a lot more to do. And that's where opportunity lies. And so I hope to see you at Oaksterdam. Absolutely. You know I'll be there. <laughs> I look forward to everything. Thank you so much, Sarah. Oh, thank you so much, Dale. It's been a pleasure, and I'm really looking forward to our future conversations. Indeed, and best of luck to all of you. There is, yes, more to do, so come to Oaksterdam and figure out what's next. Everybody, check it out. Check out their social media, their website, and really, check out the Bud Tender's Guide. It's really interesting. Thanks so much, Dale. Thank you, Sarah. And everyone remember, Planted is twice a month. And if you like listening, please give us a review, share it with a friend, let us know what your favorite episodes are. And if you'd like to stay in touch over social media, we are Planted with Sarah Pion on Facebook and Planted with Sarah on Instagram and Twitter. You can also go to our website, www.plantedwithsarah.com or listen to us on our parent network, Radio Misfits Network, where there are other great podcasts like one of my favorites, the Winemakers Podcast. So check it out. You can listen to Planted wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, whether that's Pandora, Spotify, Amazon, Google, Apple, Stitcher, tune in. We are there. So join us. And until next time, stay curious, stay safe. And remember, it's a wild world out there. Be good to one another. Until next time, take care. Mm-hmm.